God is good? And all the time? Did you have a good Thanksgiving this week? Awesome. How many of you uh, watched the Cowboys game? Oh, yeah, all right. God is still good. And all the time. I want to invite you to find your way to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 this morning as you find your way maybe on the YouVersion Bible app or you actually have a printed Bible. Uh, I do want to, as many of you probably found out last week in your Connect group, we uh, and made this announcement first last week in Connect group, but I want to announce it here in, in church as well, uh, that we are going to have an opportunity on December 19th to get to go back to one service and all be together again. Are you excited about that? So uh, unfortunately for you guys, you know, I always get to practice this message once first, and then you get to hear the polished version, but now you're going to have to hear the original uh, starting on the 19th. But I wanted to remind us of why we ever went to two services, and then also point to the reason that God has allowed us now to go back to one. If you remember in the spring of 2020, did you guys just get this like unnerving feeling when you think about the spring of 2020, but uh, we were banished from church, if you remember, and we were trying to figure out how can we reopen the doors, and you know, Texas was like 25% maybe. No, no one knew anything, honestly, at the time. We were all pretending like we did or guessing, and so we just felt like, hey, let's, we have a great space, a big space. Let's, so we, we kind of went to two services for two reasons. One was to social distance. You guys remember, uh, some of you are new and maybe don't even know, but we for a while had uh, the times on the side of the pew, 9.15 or 10.30, and depending on what service time you came to is the pew you sat in, and so that way we could social distance and be you know, sanitized and all that good stuff. Um, so that was one of the reasons, and thank God we had a great space that we could do that. The other reason when we went to two services was not just because we had space in here to do so. But it was also because before COVID, uh, every one of our connect groups were packed full and we had no empty ones that we could start new connect groups. And so we thought, well, God is pushing us into two services for this reason. And maybe this will also allow us to have new connect groups. And so we launched three new connect groups when we came back from COVID. That was a God thing for sure. And so what it allowed some of our other groups to get a little smaller. We started some other connect groups because one of our uh, really emphasis we want for you as you kind of think in concentric circles is we're moving people from the crowd into community to become the core. And, and so we're always going to be pushing you. If you're not in a connect group, you heard Soya give a great reason to be in connect group this morning. We're always going to encourage you to get plugged into a connect group because the Christian life is not supposed to be done in isolation. We're supposed to be in community. And so this is why we launched new connect groups. So now, you know, everyone's kind of feeling a little more comfortable sometimes about coming back and getting together. And so we begin to pray, well, how could we get back together in one service, but also not shut down connect groups, continue to fill the mission and vision of leading more people to find and follow Jesus, not less people. And so we begin to discuss with some of our uh, leaders. Now, as was mentioned, we have a great staff, but we have a great lay leaders in this church and some godly men and women who begin to pray about it. And so because of three of our, what we kind of have under the table termed as legacy groups, because of three of those leaders, uh, Charles Bartley and Jerry Howery and Jim Ader, they lead some of our biggest connect groups. 
they, uh, we begin to have discussion with them and praying about it, and they felt like it was worth the sacrifice to have their connect group early so that we could still add connect groups and have space for more connect groups, but still focus on community. Then that would also allow us to have one service. And so I'm thankful for some of you are going to have to come earlier. And that's okay, right? Because if it provides more space for more people to get connected to Jesus, then it's worth the decision. And so I'm thankful God has blessed us with a great space, but I'm also thankful for great leaders who are willing to sacrifice and to come a little early uh, so that we can continue to grow and continue to see God do great things. And so uh, as you think about it, Psalm 139, if you see on the stage here, this is our fourth week of our series, Psalms of the Season. And our first week was way over here, promise of strength in Psalm 27. We realized that God uh, gives us strength and he is our strength. Then we looked at uh, Psalm 34, the promise of deliverance. I'm thankful that on June the 6th, 1991, God delivered me from my sins. And at the age of 17, I confessed my sins and my faith in Jesus. And he delivered me once for all. Isn't that awesome? But I also find that I make many mistakes, and sometimes I daily need God to deliver me. Can I get an amen to that? For you, not for me. All right. The next one, last week, Pastor Nathan preached Psalm 100, the promise of God's faithfulness. And I am thankful for a faithful God. I'm thankful that it's against his nature not to be faithful. I'm thankful that his faithfulness is not dependent on my faithfulness, that he is a faithful God. And today, the promise of God's presence, the promise of God's presence. Now, as we think about this psalm, and again, we're in Psalm 139. Most scholars believe that, that um, David is the author of this psalm. And when we think about this psalm, there's two big theological terms that kind of rise to the surface. So I'll give you these theological terms, then we'll kind of walk through it. The first one we see is that God is omniscient. All right, omniscient, all right? And what that means is God is all-knowing. So we believe what the Bible teaches us is that God knows all things. He's omniscient. The, the second thing we see in this is that uh, it points to the theological term is uh, omnipresence. And omnipresence, all right? Meaning God is everywhere at all times. That he has always been and always will be. He had no beginning. He's the uncaused cause. He is. He is the great I am, and he is everywhere at all times. He's omnipresent. I think another theological term that's kind of on the surface but really doesn't come to the, the surface is this, that, that God is omnipotent, that God is all-powerful. So we believe that what God's Word teaches that God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and he's omnipresent, he's in all places at all times. And when I think about the theology that's in Psalm 139, it made me think of a, a particular and famous quote of A.W. Tozer. And what A.W. Tozer said is this, what we or what you or what I, what, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what that means is that we have to understand theology is important because what we believe about God, what we believe who God to be will direct our thoughts, our actions, our words, what we say, and what we do. So theology is important. And so those two things, the, the omnipresence of God and the omniscience of God, really are highlighted in David's psalm here. 
But what I want to do when we walk through this is we're going to see like four kind of breakdowns of this passage. And I'll just give you like a a title of these four sections. And then there's a conclusion, the last two verses. What you will notice, if if you noticed and you were paying attention, uh, by the way, I've loved listening to all of our people read God's word. Haven't you loved that the last few weeks? Just to focus on the word of God. And as Cassandra was reading it, I began to think, uh, as I was thinking about how personal this psalm is. And you remember David, or uh, excuse me, Nathan pointed out last week, psalm means song. And these, as a personal song, David is writing about his God. And you'll see that he uses the word you, like speaking directly to God, 29 different times in this passage. 45 times David uses the words either you, or excuse me, me or I. So he is like, this is a personal like conversation song about God. And so I think there's four things we can learn about God through what David writes. The first section is verses 1 through 6. And if you're writing notes, the title of this section that I've just placed on this is that God knows you. You see, God is a personal God. God knows you. Listen to what David says, verse number 1. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. In other words, so far, what has David said? God, you know my actions, you know my thoughts. Verse 3, you comprehend my path and my lying down and according with all my ways. God knows my actions, my thoughts, and my ways. And verse 4, there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. God knows my actions God knows my thoughts, my ways, my words. In verse 5, you have hedged me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. In verse number 5, this idea of of hedged me, it seems like this idea of of protection. But your hand upon me then also would would speak towards his blessings. And you kind of see the same thing in verse 10. Like, I almost feel like five should be down in the next section, but, but it's not. And we think about this idea that God knows you. It brings to mind in Psalm 34, I think it was verse number nine, that said that if we fear God, we will not lack any good thing. Remember, we highlighted the idea of what does it mean to fear God? And I think this idea that God knows me, he knows my actions, my thoughts, my words, my ways, he knows everything about me, every detail about me, God knows. It, for me, it kind of brings the thought back to, wow, I should probably fear God. You remember the definition we gave that to fear God means it's like this constant or continual awareness that our heavenly Father, our heavenly holy righteous Father, is observing, he's watching, he knows what you think, what you say, and what you do. Now, if you're walking with God, the fact that he knows your actions, thoughts, ways, and words can be a good thing. But if you're not walking with God, and maybe you're involved in some things you shouldn't be involved in, the fact that God knows your words and actions and thoughts and ways, maybe not such a good thing, is it? But it really speaks to that God knows you personally. So God knows you. The next section, verses 7 through 12, again, the title that I've just given to this section is God is with you. 
Section one, God knows you, verses one through six. Section two, God is with you, verse seven through 12. Let's read that. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your, there's the word presence. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, again, this speaks a little bit, I think it sounds a lot like verse number five. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. So God knows you. God is with you. Now, when we think about this idea that God knows me and God is with me, I think it's kind of this two-sided coin. You see in Genesis chapter 3 when uh, Adam and Eve sinned, what was their immediate response when they sinned? What did they do? They began to hide, right? It's like me trying to hide behind this table. Could they hide from God? Can you hide from God? When Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and he said, go to Nineveh and preach repentance. And what did Jonah do? Remember, God said, go this way. And what did Jonah do? He went that way. And he tried to flee from the presence of God. So it's kind of this two-sided coin, right? That if I'm walking with God, the presence of God brings courage and it brings life and it brings grace and it brings mercy. But if I'm not walking with God, like maybe instead of courage, it's correction. Maybe instead of protection, it's penalty, right? And the reality is, as God being a good, good father, this is going to be a really deep thought, right? That maybe the penalty is actually protection. God is protecting us from ourselves, right? And so as we think about the fact that God knows me, that God is with me, I think that like the emotion of the song and this psalm is not about, oh, I fear God because he's always watching me. I don't think that's the emotion of it, although it is true. Like we should fear God. I think the emotion, the greater emotion that David is like, Wow, the God who knows me, the God who created all things, he is, he's with me. It's like Psalms 23, 4. Like Psalm 23 is one of the most quoted psalms, but what does verse 4 say? It's my favorite verse in Psalm 23. It says, yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear what? I will fear no evil. I will fear nothing. What a, what a great statement that no matter my circumstances, no matter what I face, the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will fear nothing. What could make David make such a proclamation? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you, God, are with me. And then the next part of the verse says, your rod and your staff they do what? They comfort me. I kind of see Psalms 23, verse 4, especially the rod and the staff, kind of the, the picture in, in our text here in verse number 5 and verse number 10. Because the rod equals the strength and the protection of God, and the staff in Psalms 23, 4 is his guidance and his loving kindness. And this, when we walk with God knowing that he knows everything about me, the good, the bad, and the what? 
ugly. He still loves me. In fact, Paul said that while I was still a sinner, he sent his son to die for me. So, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear nothing because God is, he's with me. He is a good God. So David says that God knows you, God is with you, and then the next section, God created you. God created you. Again, as we think about this, this is a very personal psalm, like 45 different times, me, I, 29 different times, you. Like it's a personal conversation that he's having about his Savior. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me. The the word there is more the idea of you weaved me. It speaks of the intentionality and the, the delicate, intricate work that God performed in creating us. This is in my mother's womb. Then verse 14, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows very well. David is saying one of the greatest reasons we have to praise God is because he fearfully made us. He wonderfully made us. He wove us together. He goes on with the imagery, my frame was not hidden from you, verse 15, when I was in made in secret, and this word skillfully would, would be a word that we might use of embroidery. Like it just speaks to detail. It speaks to intentionality. You wrought me in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance be, being yet unformed, and your book, and in your book they are all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. I love this verse 17, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God, how great is the sum of them that God thinks about you. Remember what he told Jeremiah? Before you were in your mother's womb, I formed you and I ordained you to be a prophet. Like I had a plan, I had a purpose for you. In Ephesians 2, verse 10, it talks about that we are his masterpiece, his workmanship, that he's created us on purpose for a purpose. Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, my thoughts for you are for you to have a hope and to have a future The God who created you knows you, and he created you exactly how he wanted you to be. And he created you on purpose for a purpose. And you will not be fulfilled in life. When Jesus said that I came to give you life and to give you life more, what's the word? Abundantly, to give you the abundant life. You will never experience the abundant life if not first you're not in Christ, and second you're not fulfilling the purpose Christ has for you. And how would I know the purpose? So again, this speaks to intentionality. It speaks to purpose. It speaks to like this masterpiece, this art. Anybody here like artistic in the room? Any of you like artistic? Like you can draw, you can sing, you can play, all those things. I don't like you people. All right, but my my daughter is very artistic. It amazes me how she can do and what she can create. But when I think about this text, I think of a masterpiece. I think of art and I think of And many times in masterpiece, you can look at a piece of art and not know everything that is intended for us to meet or to know. So I was trying to think uh, this week, what is something I could show you guys, like this piece of artwork that has purpose, that has meaning, that has significance, that we could all look at and say, wow, I didn't know. Can anybody look at something in the room this morning and figure out what we could look at together? Yes, me, I'm so good looking. No, no, I know you were thinking that. The stained glass. 
Isn't that beautiful? I love coming here early when no one's in. The lights are off in here. The sun has come up and the light's just coming through. It's beautiful just to look at. But you know there's a lot more significance to that than you know. How would we know why the colors he chose and why the squares? How would we know the significance behind this piece of art? Ask the artist. Somebody got it. Good for you, Patrick. Ask the artist. It wasn't a trick question. If you want to know what the significance of what the purpose is, what the meaning is, ask the artist. You know, there's 66 blue squares around that. What do you think 66? I know some of you are counting right now. I get it. You're, you're going to hear nothing else. I get it because I would be that person. In fact, I did count them while we're singing. I was making sure. Anyways, 66. What do you think the number 66 represents? Books of the Bible. And the blue speaks to truth, speaks to heaven, it speaks to loyalty. 66. Well, how many books are in the New Testament? 27. How many squares are on the bottom that are big blue squares? 27. And how many Old Testament books are there? 39. Some of you are good at your trivia. Guess how many blue squares are on the top half? 39. There's a lot of significance in this, isn't there? There's three, I, I forgot to say this in the first service, so there's three green circles that are interlocking. Do you see that? They're kind of faint. What do you think the number three circles represents? It's the unity of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. The cross, there's three different colors that represent the cross. There's actually 33 of the clear or the white that represent the 33 years of life of Christ. The red of the cross represents the shed blood of Christ, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. The white represents victory in Jesus because he is alive. And because he lives, guess what? All who are in Christ will live also. The gold represents heaven and it represents the ascension, it represents the purpose that Jesus fulfills right now because right now Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And guess what he's doing? He's praying for you. He sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for followers of Jesus, for us. There's a lot of significance in that. The, all the rays that just kind of go out are supposed to represent the grace of God that goes to all mankind. It represents what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does he say? Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. There's a lot of significance that the artists put in that picture, wasn't it? It, listen, it doesn't compare to the intentionality and the purpose that God designed in you for you. And you will not live the abundant life. Next week, we're going to start a new series, Joy to the World. And you're not going to have joy in your world until you find Jesus and until you live on mission for him. And David says, God, you know me. You're with me. You created me on purpose for a purpose. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would live on purpose, that we would fulfill the purpose God has in us and for us. The next section of Scripture, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there because, to be honest, it's a little bit confusing to me. 
And uh, the more scholars I read, the more confused I was, to be honest. Like, it just seems kind of out of place, and no one's really for sure what it's there for. I, I have some guesses, but verse number 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as, or I count them my enemies. And of course, we don't really see in scripture where we're supposed to hate anyone, but Jesus did speak to that a little bit, right? Remember he said, if you don't hate your father or mother, then you're not worthy to be my disciple. We didn't really want them to hate them. But it's like, maybe, maybe this section, these few verses, the, the, the title I gave it, if you're taking notes, is God is the righteous judge. That God will judge, that God is a righteous judge. And maybe it's speaking to priorities that in David is just aligning himself with the God who knows him and the God who created him, the God who is with him. Yeah, God, I'm, I'm not one of those. I'm not the enemy. God, I'm, I'm on your side. Maybe it's just an alignment thing. Maybe it's just a priority thing that, God, you are first. And in comparison to my love and my devotion to you and my surrender to you, God, it's like I hate everyone else. But I think it also speaks to the fact that one day everyone will stand and there will be line drawn. And you're going to be judged. And that judgment will be an eternal judgment. And there's one of two outcomes of that judgment. You are either going to spend an eternity in darkness, in a place called hell, outside the presence of God. Or you're going to spend an eternity in a place called heaven, eternal life in the presence of God. And, and maybe David is speaking to that final judgment. And this morning, what I would want everyone in the room to understand is that one day you are going to stand and you are going to be judged. There's only one right answer. I'm with Jesus. Why should I let you into my heaven? I'm with him. I already spoke to this when I was 17 years old. I made that decision. I gave my life to Jesus. I placed my faith of hope and eternity and eternal life, not in my good works, but in the finished work of what we just looked at the cross. Have you ever done that? Because the reality is, God created you and he created you on purpose and for a purpose. God knows you, God knows every detail about you. But God, not, God is not with you unless you are with him. Unless you've made a decision, I wanna be on that side. And Jesus said that he is the only way he is the truth. He is the life. No one gets to God except through Jesus. And this morning, if you've not made that decision to give your life to Jesus, can I tell you it's very easy to do? It's simply admitting, yes, I'm a bad guy. Or girl. I've done something wrong. It's simply believing, yes, I believe Jesus died for me. And I confess Jesus is Lord. You can do that right now at your seat. It's admitting you're a sinner, believing Jesus died, and confessing you need Jesus, that he is the only way. You, you can do that right now. And I want to encourage you, if you make that decision today, here in a moment we're going to stand and we're going to sing. I'm going to be standing right down here. If you want to talk to me about it, that would be, I would love to talk to you about it. 
If you don't feel comfortable walking down here in front of everybody, I get it. At the close of the service, I'm going to be right there in the foyer. Just, hey, just wave me down. We can go and we can talk about it. Don't leave this morning not making that decision if you've never done it. To admit, to believe, and to confess. Let's look at the conclusion this morning of this chapter. Verse 23. Again, it speaks to the beginning, right? He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. And he's already pointed out God knows everything. He knows my thoughts, my actions, my will, everything. Then he says, try me and know my anxieties. See if there are any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. And what I feel like what is happening, what David is saying is David is acknowledging that God already knows everything about him because he created him. God already knows all that. God is with him. God has never left him. He'll never leave us or forsake us. But it's, it's, it's an acknowledgement, like it's something probably we should do every day to just ask God, hey, God, are we good? Because God has never walked away from me. But you know what I've done a few times? I've walked away from him. And every morning I should get up and say, God, we, are we good? The number one rule in life is not to fool yourself, but yet you are the easiest person to fool. You ever heard that one? God, would, would you search my heart? Because I'm prone to wonder. God, would, would you search my thoughts? Because sometimes I can't control them. God, would you reveal sin in my life? And I think the underlying thought is, God, when you reveal these things in my life that don't honor you, I'm going to repent. And then he finishes the psalm by saying, lead me in the way everlasting. I think... The proper response, well, we, we said this, we said that theology is important because what we believe to know about God and who God is will direct our thoughts and our actions. I believe when we have a correct view of God and what we see in this passage is that he is omniscient and that he's omnipresent. And when we see those things for who God is, it should always, a proper view of God will always, it should always lead us to surrender. God lead me. I'm going to take my hands off the wheel. I'm going to change seats, let you drive, because God, you're in control. I surrender to you. And, and the reality is, surrendering to God and his plan is, it's a pretty good deal. It's kind of freeing. Like, I'm not in control anymore, God. You 